0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays, and their underwater habitat, brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. And this week, I am very excited because we are answering all your questions about, drumroll please, the basking shark. A species that is not only the second largest species of shark in the world, but is also one that is very close to my heart. And I am joined this week by two other basking enthusiasts, Shane Waszek and Rachel Brooks, who run Basking Sharks Scotland, an organisation dedicated to raising awareness and promoting the conservation of these incredible animals on the west coast of Scotland, which is where I live. This is a really fun episode that I actually got to record in person at Baskin Shark HQ. So grab yourself a cop- coffee and let's dive in into the mysterious and murky world of the Baskin Shark. today is a particularly fun episode because I am actually recording it in person in Baskin Shark headquarters with Shane and Rachel from Baskin Shark Scotland because we are talking about, you guessed it, the Baskin Shark. Shane and Rachel, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello,
1: welcome hello. to
0: Baskin Shark HQ. <laughs> <laughs> now as you can probably tell, um, full disclosure, we haven't just met, we do know each other pretty well, um, so we've known each other for a couple of years now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Good. I am a seasonal guide for Baskin Shark Scotland, but Shane and Rachel are the brains behind the operation. So Shane, can you tell us what your role is and what ba- Baskin Shark Scotland does?
2: Uh, yeah, we uh, we obviously do um, snorkeling and wildlife, venture tours in the Hebrides based from Oban and then out to the Isle of Call uh, in the summertime. Uh, we take a variety of people uh, into various islands and various experiences which can range from snorkeling and kelp forests and with seals to into Fingal's cave and with basking sharks and watching whales and dolphins and lots of exciting things like that. Uh, and I just do all the all the rubbish jobs since i'm the since I'm the owner, so I get to do all the lovely stuff where everyone has a good time. Um, so yeah, I get to stay in the boat. But yeah, I usually, usually I drive the boat now, and obviously do all the admin and things in the back uh, office uh, in the winter time. Um, but yeah, you generally find me doing all the, all the stuff that other people don't want to do.
0: Yeah, but driving boats is fun. Yes,
2: yeah, it is. On the uh, on the nice, uh, poor days where it's raining, it's nice to be in the cabin. But then when it's nice and sunny and everyone's outside having a nice time, then maybe not so good. <laughs>
0: I mean, a lot of people don't actually know that Baskin sharks are on the west coast of Scotland. I mean, when we talk about, um, we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail later on, but when we talk about global hotspots for sharks, not many people associate that with Scotland. And I guess we do quite a lot of, when we are out on the boats, we do quite a lot of um, kind of data collection as well, really, or we try to.
2: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So like, and at that time, obviously, like you guys, uh, background in geology and marine biology. uh, And, you know, we've been involved in lots of different projects over the years, but wanted to have a kind of science element to it as well, because obviously, we've got such a great opportunity to be in the environment with really cool species. And being out there every single day, you know, over a researcher who only has a certain amount of time that they can be uh, in the field, we're literally there every single day and see pretty much everything there is to see with them. So we've got such a unique opportunity to capture some really interesting data. So that was a a big thing to to do that as part of it, not just be cutting about having a good time, which is also good, but you want to have a good time with a purpose.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. it? And you know, for us, it doesn't kind of really feel like a job sometimes unless you're washing someone's minging wetsuit at the end of the day. Yeah, the yin
2: and yang. (laughs) Take the rough with the smooth.
0: And Rachel how about you can you tell us a little bit about your well a what you were doing before you mm-hmm. started with Baskinshot Scotland and then b kind of what your role is with the company now.
1: Yep uh, so I've been working with Baskinshot Scotland now for the last two years as operations manager so as our um, job here is quite seasonal during the summer it's all very much all systems go out on the boats every day uh, having most of the time a really good time looking for wildlife and then during the winter there's a lot of work behind the scenes making sure that everything is ready for the next year. Um, So we do a lot of admin and a lot of office work over winter when it's not quite as enjoyable to be in the West Highlands. (laughs) Um, But before that I was living overseas so I've been working in the dive industry now since uh, 2015 and um, when I became a dive instructor after leaving uni um, and I spent that time travelling around uh, teaching diving, basically in mostly in the tropics, uh, so opposite climate to here, uh, guiding tours with uh, mantas and whale sharks as well in the Ningaloo um, before we decided to come back home and set up routes here in Scotland. Awesome, but I mean,
0: I know like all about like your background in mm-hmm. history and like all the experiences that you've had just look so incredible. If like in much warmer waters than this, mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. as we're going to talk about, equally as um, amazing and biodiverse.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like I've been blown away by the wildlife here in the Hebrides. It's really, yeah, exceeded my expectations for sure. <laughs> That's, That's good But um,
0: yeah, um, I mean, my role is very different to these guys. I just hop on for the fun bit in summer and help take people out with the Baskin Shock so I don't have to deal with the uh, kind of typhoon of emails that come in over autumn and winter. Um, But my next question is a question that we ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's one that everybody says they have problems in answering because it's quite difficult when you ask a lot of marine experts um, what their most memorable experience in the ocean is but I'm going to pitch it to you guys so Rachel what is your most memorable experience in the ocean?
1: Yeah so that is a really tough question and um, I've been really fortunate at the experiences I've had over the last seven years and um, But it would definitely be one here actually, um, which I guess might be a similar one for both of you, was a really standout day for me. Um, It was the start of last season when we first arrived in Kull. Uh, some of the locals had said that they'd seen uh, some really big whales off the coast. Uh, They said they thought they were minkies, but from the description, they sounded like something way bigger. Uh, So they said they could see them blasting fish into the air and huge white pectoral fins and humpbacks are my absolute all time favorite animal. So straight away, I was like, "Ah, (laughs) there's humpbacks about. (laughs) I think it took us about three weeks before we Hmm. eventually caught up with them. Uh, But yeah, we've named, we've dubbed it Barney Day. (laughs) It was just a mind-blowing day. It was like, it was off an episode of Blue Planet. We had super pods of common dolphins, two humpback whales feeding uh, for five or six hours, just lunging next to the boat. There was birds everywhere. There's even a couple of basking sharks in the mix. It was just insane, I think. And being here on home water just makes it so much more special. So, yeah, because we don't get humpbacks that often here. We do get we, them. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was mind-blowing.
0: Like, <laughs> especially to have an experience like that where we were with them for, I think it was, was it six hours?
2: Something like that, yeah. Just most of the day, mid-morning until like five o'clock or something. Wasn't it? it
0: was absolutely insane. And we could
2: have stayed longer as well. No, but yeah. we just get to that time, it was like, oh, it's going to take us an hour to get back. And
0: mm. But honestly, like I've, yeah... I mean, no one's ever asked me on this podcast. Um, but that is that is my most memorable experience yeah. as well. Just because... You should say
2: what your one is then. That one. Well, you can't have the same one because if I'm not like that one, you're not like that one.
0: <coughs> well, we we're talking about it now. But yeah, it was just... A me, collective one. A it, collective most memorable experience. I
1: think it was really nice as well, being with such a great group of people and just mm. being able to sit on the boat with the engines of just enjoying yeah. it for just such a long time as well. Yeah. It's not often when you're in like a working environment that you can just take something in like that and we should also say it's nicknamed barney day because the humpback whale was called barney not the (laughs) dinosaur as it was sighted over on the east coast later in the year and some school children named it barney because of the barnacles on its tail
0: oh i didn't know that's why they called it barney that's actually like Mm. oh that's actually really sweet yeah it was it was mad but shane you are allowed to say that as your most memorable experience as well
2: I'm not going to say that one, because you've ruined it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to say?
2: Well, since it's Baskin Sharks got on, I have to say a Baskin Shark, don't I? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, go on then. What's your what's what
2: like Probably one of the days we had when we just had like a Mega Shark day, I think counted over like a hundred, and it was the only day I've ever done Baskin Sharks swimming anchored, because we had that many. We were just in a bay, and there was just that many, and we just didn't need to move, so we just dropped anchor, and they were just similar to Barney, I guess, uh, that we were just there for hours and it was just mega flat and just sharks everywhere and it was just ridiculous. So that was probably one of the most memorable.
0: Moving on to the story of our show today, which is the Baskin Shark. Um, we've got quite a lot of uh, audience questions to get through today because whenever you mention the Baskin Shark, a lot of people are really interested to find out more about them um but i thought we could start in the easiest place which is by describing what a baskin shark actually is so shane do you want to start us off on this one what is a baskin shark what is a baskin shark don't say a shark <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a shark <laughs> a large uh, macro shark i guess it looks kind of similar to a great white with its mouth closed but when it feeds it opens up its huge mouth Uh, can be over a meter wide uh, and they have these uh, modified appendages in their mouth called a gill raker uh, and that's how they filter out these little microscopic animals from the water column so they have a, a huge big mouth that they open up so they're a really unique shark one of only three filter feeders um, but very different to the other two which is whale shark and the, and the megamouth. mouth uh, but very unique looking animal uh, and it's really cool that uh, we've got the you know the, a big hot spot for them uh, in our kind of home turf.
0: You mentioned that that they um, they're a mackerel shark which I what Was the one of the most interesting things about them is that they're from the order Lamniformes, which is the maple sharks, and that includes things like the white shark, mm. um, which means that their body shape is actually incredibly similar, so very, very different to a whale shark, which is a bit more flat. Yeah, um, and when the Baskin shark's got its mouth closed, it can look like a massive great white shark coming towards yeah, you, which yeah, I think really is really cool. <laughs> Um, but they can get massive, so Rachel, how how big can the Baskin shark actually get?
1: Yeah, so they are the largest fish that we get in the UK and the second largest in the world, um, growing up to 12 metres with the largest confirmed record being 12.2. Uh, so yeah, they're absolutely ginormous and um, the ones we get here, Normally we'd say a very large shark would be maybe eight to ten meters as we don't quite see as many of those really large individuals anymore Unfortunately, and yeah, they weigh over five tons. So they're really really big fish. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah. They can be absolutely massive. That's like I mean, what is that in feet if you transfer that to feet? About
1: 30?
2: 35 feet maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I just find it so mind-boggling that the you know, two of the largest species of shark in the world, they're not predators at all, they're actually filter feeders and they've evolved those mechanisms differently. Um, and I, We actually talked about, we mentioned this very briefly on an earlier episode of the podcast with uh, Megan Jader and Omani, and we were talking about the difference between baskin sharks and whale sharks and mm. they made a really interesting observation which I personally agree with is that the, the whale shark is kind of like the baskin shark's the Baskin shark 2.0 <laughs> kind of thing. So it's got like, they do the same thing, but the Baskin shark is a bit slower and a bit groggier in the way that it does it. An outdated version. An outdated version, <laughs> yeah. So Baskin sharks, can you explain like the differences between a Baskin shark and a whale shark? Uh,
1: yeah, so when we're talking about um, plankton eating sharks, the Baskin shark is the only one that exclusively feeds passively which in more simple terms means it's extra lazy really. It's not <laughs> sucking the water in like the whale shark does and the Megamouth shark. It actually just has to swim open mouth through the water, straining the water through its gill rakers. So yeah, if you're talking about it being an outdated version, it does seem to be a really simple feeding mechanism compared to other sharks where it have a highly developed predatory uh, hunting techniques. But yeah, Baskin
0: sharks just. I think I love them even more than the whale shark <clears throat> just because of that. That reason is that yeah. they're just kind of a bit gnarlier and a bit. Uh... Yeah, they are just
1: that rugged looking cousin that's yeah. not quite as glamorous. A lot of people say they're like
2: prehistoric looking or dinosaur yeah, like, and because of that skin and all the uh, cuts and grooves and mottling and things, they just look very. Different, don't they?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, but then you get the the megamouse shark, which is that third mm. species of filter feeder, and that looks like the version before the Baskin shark. Going back to the Baskin shark, where can we find them?
2: We can Go. find them, you can actually find them all over the world, funnily enough, mm-hmm. um, but there is a variety of hotspots um, around the place. Here is one of them, of course, Um, but the ones in the northeast Atlantic migrate to and from the temperate seas uh, in the summertime. Uh, So generally between the west coast of the UK and Ireland um, in the summer, and then they head down to the subtropics in the winter. Um, But there are still remaining populations uh, in other uh, oceans, so uh, northwest or northeast Pacific, Pacific, uh, and then down towards like New Zealand and things. So, uh, and there's been records in Australia and Indonesia and. South Africa and all over the place. So uh, they are a, a very global uh, species, but um, very uh, specific hotspots where you have a reasonable chance of actually seeing them. So obviously here is one of the best ones. Um.
0: Yeah, Rachel, what's the general rule of thumb for kind of seeing them in, on the West Coast? At so kind of what time of year do we tend to see them?
1: Yeah, so we normally start to hear about sightings around lights Um, and that can be a few odd sightings out in the isles around here, and more commonly around on the south coast of the UK. Um, and it's mostly in July and August when we start seeing them on the surface in really large numbers, so we've mentioned already that the water here is quite cold, and mm-hmm. um, but the conditions just start to match up through the spring with um, really nutrient-rich waters, with big phytoplankton blooms in turn making big zooplankton blooms and that then brings in these sharks in really large numbers and we see them at the surface because they're at the surface feeding mm-hmm. and as you've already said that's not a very large portion of their time uh, but that's their time that we are specifically looking for <laughs>
0: yeah yeah do you want to talk a little bit more about the migrations that they that they undertake or kind of like what we yeah what we know about
1: them so there doesn't really seem to be much of a uniform answer for mm-hmm. where Baskin sharks go, um, which is quite a consistent theme across what we know about Baskin sharks, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we know that they come here in the summer in really large numbers and we see them off the coast of Ireland as well. Um, But historically, you'd have had uh, large aggregations in other places where they've unfortunately been almost wiped out. Um, So the sharks that we have here, it does seem that some of them might stay here over winter. Um, We have had sighting reports of them through the winter, and they've been seen by divers um, during winter in deep water as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them have been tagged, doing huge transatlantic migrations. so that was one tagged in off the Isle of Man. And it went all the way over to Canada over 82 days, and that was almost 10,000 kilometres. So originally they thought the sharks were maybe following continental shelves, but they've also seen now that they're just swimming in open water for really large distances. So there's definitely a little bit more going on in the basking shark brain than we give them credit for. <laughs> um, <laughs> And there's also other ones going down to the Bay of Biscay. So, again, they're going all over the show, really. As we've already said, they have a global population and that you can see them in most parts of the world. Um, But, yeah, we don't really know much about their population numbers or where they're going or what they're doing in that time. There's still so much to learn about them.
0: Yeah yeah definitely like this is that's going to be a common theme throughout this episode because we are sort of getting out of the sort of territory of what we do know about Baskin Sharks and Mm -hmm. as the episode's going to carry on we're going to find out just how much we actually don't know about Mm -hmm. them. Speaking of you, you know they obviously migrate huge huge distances and they've got to obviously eat something to keep themselves going. Um, So this brings us on to the kind of, uh, this is the area that most people wanted to know about bar the kind of threat to the Baskin shark, which is what they feed on and how
1: they do it. Mm -hmm. So let's start with what Baskin sharks actually eat. So, they are planktivorous, uh, meaning they feed on zooplankton. Uh, so, when we're talking about zooplankton, that's all those tiny little organisms floating through the water column. Uh, we've got fish and decapod larvae, tiny crustaceans. Uh, they do have a very uh, targeted <coughs> preference here for uh, calanoid copepods. And, Um, We know that they do favour areas in which they find more of those, uh, from analysing their stomach contents and plankton samples. As we've said already, when they're feeding, they're feeding exclusively passively, so it's called obligate ram filter feeding, and they're the only sharks that do that, um, which makes them really special. Obligate ram? Yeah, so it's basically just talking about when you see those pictures of the basking sharks with their big open mouths, which are about a metre wide, they're swimming through the water and sieving out all the plankton, basically, mm-hmm. so... Sieving for a living! <laughs> <laughs> Gotta got sieve to survive!
0: Yeah. Why is that not on a t-shirt Yeah, yes.
2: a sieve to survive!
1: Or oh, sieving for a living, oh, yeah! Like can right. see new christmas yeah. t-shirt campaign
2: yeah, coming out soon <laughs> yeah t-shirts
1: so they,
0: they feed on uh, calanoid copepods mm-hmm. like so. and something that we've or baston shot scotland have done a bit of is the plankton sampling to see kind of exactly mm. what species it is and um, can you talk a little bit about that Shane
2: yeah yeah um well we we haven't done too much on um, species level um, it's, it's well known that the um, two types of or well mainly the the, the Callan and Copabrods but there's two different species Calanus finmarcus and Calanus Um so we've not done too much about that because there's been a lot of studies um, based yeah. on that and quite interestingly about those two species and and their effect on them for sea temperature and moving their distribution which is quite interesting we can go on to that uh, later on um <clears throat> what we've looked at is more about kind of abundance uh, levels and where they're feeding and where they're not feeding which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting or very interesting um so we found that um Areas where the baskin sharks are feeding uh, are areas of higher abundance, which you would assume. Uh, so i.e. I, there's more plankton there, so they're going to feed the, uh, more in that area. But mm-hmm. it was actually more that they would feed on the larger adult stages of the copepods. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were basically getting more bang for their buck. So you can imagine it. Yeah. Uh, a baskin shark uh, is a very energy efficient animal. And, you know, they're getting a very small meal for their efforts swimming along. So they want to... Uh, get as much food in uh, as possible so they'll actively find areas where there's um, more uh, copepods but also larger ones so um,
0: mm, they're getting that makes sense. more
2: at that time um, yeah
0: because I mean if you're I, I love the Baskin Chocks feeding strategy because uh, if, if I could choose a feeding strategy that would be <laughs> the one that I would choose is just walking around with your mouth wide open and shoving as much in as you possibly can and if you're going to do that you're probably going to go for the the bigger uh, i don't know how yeah, much that's it that, yeah. jelly beans maybe <laughs> you go for the like the bigger, yeah, bigger you
2: don't jelly beans yeah when sitting in a wee you go for the big giant when it's at the yeah, end of the table
0: why not yeah um but let's talk a little bit about we've we've mentioned a few of the things so far but maybe we can go into a little bit more detail about the actual sieve if you like the filter feeder mechanism which is what everybody associates with the baskin shark which are the gill breakers. Mm. so who wants to take this
2: yeah, a gill raker. You can think, of, I mean, a lot of people, if you if you man, uh, mentioned a whale's baleen, they would probably know what you were, or you were able to imagine what that looks like, a, a large hair-like appendage. Um, so you can imagine a, a filter feeding whale as they've got these big brushes or hairs that they close their mouth and then they, the water is sieved out and they retain the fish in their mouth. Mm. So it's kind of similar ish uh, for basking sharks that they have this type of apparatus in their mouth Uh, but what they also have on it is mucus so when they open their mouth uh, the gill arches um, on the side of its head flare open um, and the water is able to pass over uh, these gill rakers or this hair-like structure so the the uh, water passes through over the gills so obviously they get their oxygenation from there uh, but then that passes over the um the gill raker and that appendage then Filters out all the zooplankton um, mm-hmm. that we've talked about, um, which is trapped. I think both by the physical uh, hair-like structure, but also on this uh, mucus. So these uh, copepods all get trapped um, onto that apparatus, and what happens is the shark then closes its mouth uh, once it gets the kind of cue that it's got, uh, you know, a lot of uh, plankton in there, uh, and then it kind of makes this uh, mucusy soup and then swallows it down. Um, mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting because a lot of people, uh, one of the Random questions that we got asked often on the boat is, am I going to get swallowed by a Baskin shark? Because um, <laughs> uh, obviously they see this huge mouth, and you know, yeah. I guess you would, uh, you would kind of think that um, if you were a little bit, uh, you know, you didn't know much about them. Uh, but actually, their throat is actually very tiny, um, mm. so they've got this huge mouth, uh, to obviously to capitalize on trying to get as much food into that area as possible but then uh, when they're swallowing it down it's just this tiny little plankton soup that they create with this mucus Uh, uh, so it's actually very tiny
0: yeah and you'd also have to try pretty hard to get inside a shark's mouth because like (laughs) we see quite a lot of them under the water and see what their behavior is like and if you stay nice and still they do come really close to Mm. you but it looks as if they're going to swallow you whole. And then just at the last minute, mm-hmm. it either turns to the side or goes underneath. And I, I guess, but they do have the electroreceptors that a lot of other sharks do. We believe they have a fairly good sense of smell. Mm-hmm. So they should be able to detect where you are in the water. And that basking shark's not going to want you in its mouth. So you'd actually probably have to swim into its mouth and curl up inside it and even then it probably it wouldn't even swallow you. So
2: Imagine you dressed up as a giant copepod.
0: <laughs> maybe <laughs> it'd be like,
2: uh, Never mind these really rubbish it. small ones, I'm gonna go for that giant like, one.
0: Yeah. But it couldn't swallow you. That would be really disappointing. It'd it would suck it like a giant
2: gobstopper maybe. <laughs>
1: what a a vision
0: (laughs) oh maybe um but this is like this is quite a nice place to answer we've got two audience questions about food um and the first one comes from aileen i hope i'm saying your name right on twitter um and she asks how do baskin sharks get enough food because they are obviously these enormous animals and they're feeding on a species that's about one to two millimeters in size. So, you know, how do they get enough food to sort of keep themselves going? And they've got a few tactics, right?
1: Being as large as they are, they need to eat a really huge number of tiny, tiny copepods to have enough energy to survive. Um, so, when we're thinking about them swimming, and with the big mouths open. If you're swimming through the water with something so wide it obviously creates a lot of drag. Um, so they have to really optimize where they're feeding to make that worthwhile. So as we've said already they'll target specific areas where there's a higher abundance of their preferred prey type and even there, they're looking for the biggest ones of their preferred prey. So Mm -hmm. they do have a really developed sense of smell, and you've mentioned already that they can sense electrical fields with their ampullae of Lorenzini around Mm -hmm. their nose, those little dots you can see when you look at them close up, and that's always uh, detecting electrical impulses in a closer range. So they're pretty much always moving to find the densest uh, plankton abundance, basically. Yeah. So when you look at them on the surface, they look super erratic. They're always going side <laughs> to side, and they're just really unpredictable to swim with. The second thing that makes swimming with basking sharks a little bit trickier is that they'll normally be swimming in tide lines and tidal fronts, so where uh, the plankton will be uh, accumulating in one place and when you're almost 10 metres long and have a huge fin, it's quite easy to drift up and down tide lines. When you're uh, just a person with a pair of fins, it's not quite as easy. <laughs> um, and yeah, they look like they're moving really slowly, but they're actually quite impressive when they move through the water like yeah. that. Because
2: <laughs> they said about the, you, um, some of the papers that have looked into the feeding strategies, they said they consume about sort of, 30, 40 kilos of plankton a day is what they are kind of getting up to. Um, but it still doesn't seem very much for um, the size of an animal. Um, but you know, they have to feed constantly just to, to maintain their, um, mm. their energy requirements. Um, yeah. So uh, quite interesting. And one of the other things that probably didn't touch on is their liver as well, which is a huge mm-hmm. energy uh, source. Yeah. can be up to a quarter or a third of their body weight. Um, so potentially, uh, we talked about these migrations and then they're moving back and forward. They do come to the temperate seas in the summertime where we have this abundance of zooplankton and they're obviously feeding a lot of the time uh, during that period. Uh, what I don't think they know that much about is how much they're feeding during the winter time. They do get to deep water. Whether they're actually feeding on different mm. types of zooplankton or different species at that time, uh, or whether it's a, a summer feeding bonanza and they uh, put on all the the weight and uh, and put, get all this energy into the liver and that's used as a store uh, for the winter time, we're not really sure, mm. but uh, quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it'd be really interesting to know um, what what they're actually or how they're keeping themselves going over winter if they're not mm. feeding, because there was there was that. I think it was, was it by Sims, that one paper that suggested that they might still be feeding
1: in deep water?
0: Yeah. I think um, there
1: was an account of them feeding at about eight to 900 meters on yeah. plankton still, yeah. so. Yeah, because plankton, you can't find plankton at
0: those depths. Yeah. yeah you you so. kind
1: of think about it very much being a surface level thing, but they'll follow it up and down the water column yeah. throughout the day.
0: Yeah. But again, again, we don't know. Mm. We don't know that. <laughs> and that side of their life is like shrouded in mystery. <laughs> Um, we also have another really interesting question, actually, which is from Izzy on Instagram, and she says, "Do they ever choke on big things?" Which I can kind of like a giant
2: see... plankton gobstopper.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or I can see the I can see your line of thought. So, say for example, they might swallow a jellyfish by accident because they're not kind of picking it out of the water. They're not being particularly fussy about what they're taking out of the water, basically. So, yeah,
2: it's interesting,
0: eh?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've got, I've got a good video on that um, where you see sharks swimming along, uh, and then you can obviously see we get these species of jellyfish called uh, lion's manes, which can be really big, um, you know, uh, very, very large, but like even up to half a metre, a metre wide. Generally not as big as that we see them. You'd probably say about, you know, a really big dinner plate, 30, 40 centimetres across. Uh, but you can see in the video this uh, lion's mane and the shark's coming towards it, feeding in the same area because the jellyfish feed on the same copepods. pods, what the sharks do. Uh, but as you were saying before, the shark coming along and just at the last minute, it just turns its head slightly and just avoids it. Which is really cool mm. to see that. It's quite subtle. You have to watch it a few times in the video just to see the, the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, you know, they, they wouldn't want a jellyfish or, or anything else to go into their mouth. I'm sure they it, it's fairly, um, uh, you know, obviously it's not going to be that robust to have lots of debris in there. Mm. Um, but I think there's been some papers talked about the kind of vortex of them swimming through and the flow of water, how it goes in and out, uh, and mm. whether actually if they were to swim into a jellyfish, whether it would actually go into the mouth or whether them moving along through the water column is pushing water as well. And it kind of moves out to the mm. side, whereas the plankton are just uh, stay within that and goes through the gill gil rakers kind of thing. Yeah, so.
0: yeah it's a really uh, interesting question to think about because... Mm. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I get asked this on the boat as well because people are asking about plastics and wondering if bits of plastics or marine debris could mm. get choked. But like, like you said, you do see them sometimes. Like, give a little. It almost looks like a little cough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do wonder if that's what kind of that serves a function? of yeah. Getting rid of anything that's, that's yeah, got yeah. stuck.
2: It must do at some point. You would yeah. think there must be some kind of mechanism for it.
0: Yeah, you must must do. But yeah, really interesting question, is he. So moving on to a big grey area, uh, pun not intended, in the Baskin shark's life, which is kind of their mating and reproductive behaviours. Yeah. Um so we really don't know that much about Baskin Shark mating. Um, we're starting to see a lot more information come out from stuff from this year, for example, but you know what what do we what do we know really about? mating behaviours or any theories?
2: Yeah, well, it's been it's been long talked about in these parts, just because we see uh, behaviours that are not conducive to being normal basking shark stuff, i.e. feeding and things mm-hmm. like that. So this close following, so them all following each other um, very closely. Uh, we see breaching, so they jump out of the water. Uh, we see um, changing in colours uh, when they're in a kind of group uh, in the water, um, we, uh, and, and as time has gone on and we've, uh, not us, but uh, universities uh, and researchers have put tags on it, they've they've had camera tags that's shown this kind of group behaviour where they're all kind of getting together, so there's lots of things that point to it being a mating uh a mating time, it's just that it's never been captured on camera. There has been people that have said that they've seen it before yeah. on the surface and certainly we've seen something that was similar to that uh, but it wasn't like you know you were able, I'm sure people have, have seen sharks mating and how it goes on underwater, um, uh, you can't really see that on the surface with a basking shark, to mm. 10 meter long sharks, it's not that. <laughs> It would be pretty obvious that that was what was happening. uh, But it's likely to be happening underwater. But all these behaviours that we see kind of point Um, uh, to that happening, including all the mating scars that we see on the bodies, where they're obviously biting onto each other. Mm. So most people agree that it's probably happening because of all these uh, indicators that are pointing to it. It's just not been captured on camera yet to say definitively, yes, that's what's happening. It is likely to. but.
0: Um, But something you mentioned that I kind of wanted to talk about um, is breaching Rachel? Do you know kind of like why it is that they that they breach? Because there's a couple of different ideas of why they, why they might do it.
1: Yes. Yeah, so again, we don't have a definitive answer of why <laughs> they breach. The of uh, a podcast. There's a couple of theories Um, Mostly with uh, breaching in sharks and whales, it's more of a, a social cue normally. Um, mm-hmm. and they think that that could also be similar for the Baskin sharks. And when we see them here in the summer, uh, that's mostly the time that they're documented breaching is when they're in these large aggregations. Mm-hmm. So it could very much be deemed that that might be pre-courtship behavior with sharks saying like, "Hello, I'm here <laughs> to other sharks. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, that could prelude um, courtship. Um, and yeah. again, we just said we don't really know what happens after that as they go into deeper depths. So it could definitely be something to do with that. Uh, one of the other theories was that it could be to do with uh, parasite removal. And mm. um, so we get what's called lampreys uh, attached to basking sharks. If you've not seen them, they're these really hideous alien-looking creatures. <laughs> yeah, Google them. Um, <laughs> they look like they
0: look like they're from a horror film yeah. if you hadn't
1: seen them. They're pretty creepy. Um but we do see them attached to the Baskin sharks sometimes. Um mm. one of the reasons that might be maybe not a leading theory is that we don't think that that's, that's too detrimental to the shark mm. and breaching is obviously very energetically costly when you're just feeding on plankton. Uh so it might be that there's a more um social reason for that yeah yeah it is pretty spectacular to see mm. it as well yeah um, definitely
0: there is that like crazy footage this mm. year there was a lot of stuff cooking off in ireland this year um and uh, go and look look the video i'll link it in the show notes but it's crazy like there's lots of basking sharks just kind of aggregated together mm. they're not feeding um And there's a couple of divers, like, in the water with them. And then one of them just comes from, like, the depths. And it's swimming really fast, which is quite odd to see a Baskin shark do. And it breaches right in front of the divers. And although it's spectacular to see that, Mm. you do sort of, like... (laughs) be Pretty nerve-wracking. Yeah, because that's, like, a four-to-five-tonne shark that's launching itself out of the water. Um, But it's so weird to see. And, like, Shane, you mentioned that um, the recent studies that were done by the University of Exeter where they attached... Uh, animal-toed cameras, I think they're called, to mm. Baskin Sharks. So the cameras kind of aren't right on the shark. It's like following behind. Mm-hmm. And they've got some incredible footage. Like like you said, not exactly the mating itself, but a lot of the behaviour that might lead up to mating. So, like,
2: Yeah, amazing. that. Yeah, there's been some other stuff as well. I'm not sure if you've, if you've seen it. It's, I think it's due to come out soon about this circling behaviour, and they're calling that the Taurus, where, uh, yeah, where we've got basically when we've got a lot of sharks Similar to that, maybe footage you just talked about, mm. uh, where they're non-feeding and they get into this circling behaviour, where they're all tightly swimming around, and then yeah. they basically they spiral off into the depths, and they think that's a kind of pre-courtship, mm. pre-mating type thing, um, and probably links into that footage. So it's funny you've got all—it's like a jigsaw. You've got all these researchers yeah. doing different things and all kind of pieces together. But the tag that you mentioned from Exeter then picked up uh, this group behaviour underwater, where there was—I can't remember—there's was probably four or five sharks. Uh, on the footage, uh, and normally you don't see them as close as that. They'll follow each other behind each other or to the side, but they were very, very close, which you would never really see them do from from what we'd seen, uh, and almost touching their fins and uh, together.
0: I mean, I don't know about you, Rachel, but like I've definitely seen or have been in the water with sharks, and they look like they're just going round you in circles, yeah. and they're not. Sharknado. Feeding. Sharknado, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, my favourite thing to come out of that research was that we believe that
1: sharks touch fins before they mate, which is quite sweet. Yeah, we've got Hold that fins. human habit fins. of humanising other animals. Yeah. <laughs> so, so romantic. <laughs> I think it's because shark, shark mating in general is just so violent
0: (laughs) yeah it's quite nice to think that they're holding fins yeah yeah something something something's really cute (laughs) but the next couple of questions are about threats to baskin sharks um because there are quite a few Mm -hmm. um but You know, before we kind of talk about the obvious threats, um, the outdoor Alex on Instagram wanted to know: does any predator, does anything predate on basking sharks? Which is again a really, a really good question.
2: Not known. Uh, The only thing that's possibly proposed was orca, Mm.
1: Um,
2: because in South Africa recently, or recent years, there's been the ones that were uh, harassing the, the white sharks, turning them over to go into uh, tonic immobility and then eating their liver out. So bass and sharks are obviously, as we said, got a big energy store there. Um, uh, So, you know, potentially a good food source for orca. We do have orca on the west coast, but there hasn't been, to my knowledge, any uh, records of them attacking sharks or eating them of what's been seen. Um, Although I did read yesterday that maybe um, further south in the UK, there was a A record of a fisherman, maybe fifty or sixty years ago, seeing that, um, which I hadn't heard before. Yeah, Mm, Uh, but it wasn't really near where there was really orca hanging about anyway. And as probably a lot of people know, a lot of the orcas have, uh, or the orcas all have different feeding strategies and different teeth and calls and shapes uh, depending on on their what their prey items are. Um, but I don't think there's any specific shark feeders, um, like the weird, you know the fish eaters or the seal eaters or that kind of thing, because um, these two and what do they call them, port and starboard, because they got the floppy fins on either side. Um, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I think they've they were known as a specific shark feeding mm. ecotype of orca, it's Just they'd learned that maybe mm. from uh, you know their other food source being depleted or or changing kind of thing. Yeah. So it's quite interesting um but yeah otherwise there's not really any other species i mean i doubt a white shark would would go towards them it's not really their type of type of food um so it'd really only be orca so um and very little known or or Mm -hmm. recorded about that um so yeah
0: Yeah, i mean uh, yeah i'm I'm, to be honest i'm quite surprised there aren't any records of that because basken chalk would be quite an easy meal for an orca they've got that huge liver
2: Um, certainly these days yeah there aren't apart from apart from us
0: yeah yeah that brings us on very nicely to like some of the threats to basking sharks boom nice segue um so yeah so humans are probably the biggest threat to basking sharks um and we used to be especially in these waters we used to be a much bigger threat to them um -hmm. so can we talk rachel do you want to talk a little bit about what they were traditionally fished for?
1: Yeah, so there's been commercial basking shark fisheries for hundreds of years, back to pretty much the 1700s when they were first discovered. Mm. So here in Scotland, Ireland and Norway, uh, especially, um, have had quite a history of uh, fishing basking sharks and that's mostly for this big liver that we've kept talking about. Um, Mm. so. The liver can comprise almost a quarter of the body weight, and it's full of a really valuable oil called squalene, um, so that's still used today in quite a lot of stuff, but at mm-hmm. the time it would be used for really day-to-day things like burning oil for lamps to light the streets. And mm-hmm. um, So yeah, they were fished in really large numbers, and here in Scotland uh, and in the UK we think there was maybe over a hundred. 1,000 sharks fished from the mid-1940s up until when the fisheries closed in uh, ninety five. I think was the last... Yeah. That's winter. really recent. Yeah, it is. Like, within our lifetimes they yeah. were still being fished, so it's quite a strange yeah. thing that we're now yeah. out here swimming with them so peacefully yeah. uh, where they should be
2: thankful we reckon we still swim with them given that amount of sharks were taken yeah, out
0: of that, yeah. that population. Well, well, we,
1: I think they're just recovering right the population oh, yeah. that we're seeing well some of the accounts from like hundreds of years ago saying they were like stepping stones across mm. the ocean you can only imagine how mm. amazing it would have been mm-hmm. to have been there at that time and just seen them but yeah. They were uh, considered a pest even in some places because there were just so many of them. <laughs> it's absolutely mad to think about because, I mean, obviously we would kill for that. Yeah, now. definitely.
0: <laughs> imagine being able to see like so many basking sharks that you could contemplate walking over the backs oh, of them. these sharks
1: in the way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's other human-induced changes that are are quite different to the ones we've already discussed. One quite big one, but again one that there's a a big question mark over is actually microplastics. Mm -hmm. Um, So can we talk a little bit about that? So I know we've done some plankton sampling but there isn't actually actually that much scientific data on microplastics. No,
2: there's been very little um, done on it, interestingly, even though it's been a, a, a really hot topic uh, recently, of um, microplastics, but you know, as we've talked about, uh, the bass and sharks uh, feed in these areas of tidal fronts, um, which is uh, where all the plankton is gathered from the tidal <laughs> currents, but that's also areas uh, where uh, flotsam and jetsam and, and plastics uh, uh, all congregate as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, then you put two and two together and you see the bass and sharks feeding in the area uh, where there's lots of plastics and you know you're, they're filtering. Filling it out. So, you know, that could be a risk um, that they're ingesting this plastic and it uh, creates either toxicity problems or blockages in their um, stomach because they've got quite uh, obviously small uh, organs from that point of view because they just eat tiny little things. so we certainly have done some uh, plankton sampling in areas where the sharks have been feeding, where there is plastics, just to try and get some ideas of of numbers uh, and you know what 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 was in the actual water column. Um, but obviously, at a very basic level, um, the sound bite or whatever. I think what we what we figured out because obviously we know how much water. Uh, a shark can filter and um, how much they eat per day and we know how much that we what are we filtered and how much plastics was contained within that slick and then the basically the, the basic calculation is if the shark was feeding at the normal estimated rate that's been uh, studied in that concentration of plastic in that area it would be 440 grams of plastic per hour is what we thought, well, um, basically correlating the, the two things. Um, so there is a high risk to that because the areas that they feed in, in coastal areas, is affected by runoff and all the plastics that are um, in these areas. Um, and certainly I think it's a, a, an area that could be uh, well studied more than what it is because there's very uh, little going on from what I understand.
0: Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we definitely need more scientific data on it to know what the impacts on basking sharks are. Um, and we can kind of gather from other filter feeders. I mean, there's, there are other studies going on about other filter feeders, like mm. you know the big whales, um, and it looks like they are taking it on board. Yeah. Um, so it kind of it kind of makes sense. But one thing that we we do know a little bit about is how we can do our bit to keep plastics out of the environment. So so Rachel, what can so say? Someone's listening at home and they're kind of a bit worried about yeah
1: plastics. What can they do? Uh, so, just really small uh, changes that you can make while you're shopping, just being a bit more mindful about your waste you're creating. So, uh, over the past few years, especially, there's just so many alternatives now to really simple swaps that you can make in your day to day life, like just not buying plastic water bottles, having your own, having a refillable cup when you go out for a coffee. And it's all these little changes that you make, but if you think collectively there's a population of billions of people, mm. if we all just make small changes, that's a huge amount of plastic mm. we're already not contributing to the environment. We um, use like bamboo toothbrushes, uh, shampoo bars, there's so many things that you can do now, mm. and they're really great products as well, it's not like a lesser alternative. Thing there's loads of really cool companies coming up with really great environmentally friendly Mm. products which is awesome and definitely the direction we need to be moving in when you've got plastic pretty much everywhere in the world from arctic ice to the deep sea to Mm. newborn babies before they're even born it's been found in it's pretty terrifying yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: plankton not plastic hashtag (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there's there's so much that you can do. And, and the same thing with our with our last threat that we're going to talk about, which is incredibly topical because as we are talking or filming this episode, COP26 is actually going on in Ooh. Glasgow right now, talking about where world leaders have come together to talk about um, the climate crisis and how to solve it. Um, and we had quite a few questions about how climate change is going to affect Baskin Sharks. And we have... We have an episode, actually, um, in a couple of weeks' time, which is going to talk about the effects of climate change on sharks more broadly. Mm. Um, But as we're talking about basking sharks, I I thought it would be a good idea to sort of just mention this briefly as kind of maybe how they're going to be affected Mm. by it. So who wants to take this very meaty question? Meaty.
1: Meaty.
2: (laughs) Yeah, just both of us, I guess, to start off. Well, it's quite interesting because... Like everything to do with bats and sharks, you always need to know what's going on with their food. Um, as uh, and the main way I guess they are going to get affected is as their their prey items. Mm. Uh, and and the presence or absence or the location of where they are is, is very determined on on oceanographic. Uh, um, Things like so, water temperature, uh, seasons, um, and uh, depth in the water column, all these different things, that, uh, meteorological conditions. Um, so, the one I think we mentioned earlier is the two types of copepod one that uh, they prefer, which is more of a northern cold water species, um, and the other one which is more of a warm water one we've seen this warm water species gone further north as we've got increasing water temperatures so we may see that the my uh, because the favored type of food of the basking sharks has moved north maybe their migration is going to move north as well uh, but one thing to interestingly about that with basking sharks is they do this migration from the subtropics um, well almost up pretty much towards the arctic really mm-hmm. uh, because they go as far as iceland and up you know northern norway so they've actually got quite a huge range as it is. Um, so I think from that point of view, they could be quite adaptable because they do move within um, quite different water temperatures in quite different areas. Um, but I think their distribution, or maybe their, the locations that they go to may change depending on where this plankton assemblage ends up with the water temperature and, and things changing. So I think that could be one thing.
1: There, it's just- quite interesting to note that when we think about the basking sharks here in Scotland and they are quite protected, then it's all quite unknown from then on, where they are and where they're going and what would happen if that population was to move elsewhere. And Mm. yeah, there's just not really enough of an understanding of their life cycle to be able to answer that. And We didn't, I think, mention before that the Sea of the Hebrides is the first marine protected area specifically for Basking Sharks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a really exciting and hopefully uh, we can see some sort of um, movement forward especially with COP going on now as yeah. to what that might actually mean uh, going forward. And mm-hmm. so, well,
2: It's quite interesting that we've created an MPA in Scotland mm-hmm. but the actual main factor of them getting affected as in climate changes that MPA is not really gonna to do too much to that out of our MPA. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> we need to keep them here. <laughs> um but
0: yeah, so we had a couple of questions about the Sea of the Hebrides specifically and these are kind of our last ones from, from social media. Um so Abigail F on Instagram um, she asked, this is potentially quite a hard question because, I, again, I assume the answer to this is going to be we don't quite know, but her question was... So you say to everything. <laughs> I don't know. Um, do we think that the Baskin sharks will slowly move to Ireland or move to cooler or more nutrient-rich waters? Mm-hmm. This year there was quite a lot of them in Ireland or kind of more than we've sort of seen at that time of year before and less in col so I don't know if she's asking this question as a way of, like, is that going to be a general trend or if she means in response to climate change? Yeah,
2: probably a bit of both. I mean, they are, they are. it's been proven that the ones going past Ireland are the same ones that come to Scotland. That's oh. just the migration of They are going up. It's more that they, um, it's either that they, the migration wasn't as strong and they didn't come up or that the plankton was further down and we didn't see them as much. Um So I would say that uh, if we're talking about climate change and what we just said about the plankton and uh, the favoured species moving north, I think you would see a more northerly shift of the sharks going uh, Mm. further north uh, moving with the food rather than going south, because obviously it's a a cold water species that they're they're after
0: yeah yeah i mean uh, that is another question from veronica on instagram who we know um so Mm -hmm. she did come out with us this year oh yeah um and her question was actually do we have any idea of why the sharks we didn't get as many sharks on call this year because we didn't really get that many sharks around the hebrides which was Mm -hmm. super unusual Mm. um and i know you have some theories about this like we don't we don't quite know this yet.
2: Don't know. <laughs> yeah, lots of theories. Um, I mean, like one of the, uh, it's quite good because um, uh, when you get these little quotes from people, there was a, a lobster fisherman on Tyree that, uh, and he'd been at the fishing for 35 years and he'd never seen a summer like it, uh, those kind of things. So it's interesting when you get these little sound bites from people about an anomaly. And in And of course, you know, we're just looking at it as a snapshot of one summer. You know, if you looked at it in the context of a couple of hundred years, it probably wouldn't really be that unusual to have a strange year in all these times. But certainly a very strange summer. Uh, But when you start looking into some of the meteorological things that were going on, like it was the, uh, let me find the the stack because it's very interesting. It was the driest summer, the driest period uh, since 1862. Uh, the summer past um, it was also one of the warmest and um, one of the least windiest as well so we had some very very specific weather conditions and as we talked about uh, when we're finding bass and sharks it's all to do with the plankton and if we have a change in the plankton uh, and whether that comes from a change in water temperature a change in salinity a changing nutrients from upwelling from storms um, uh, there's probably been some effect on the plankton from those meteorological conditions that's changed uh, something around those areas and and an easy an easy way to see it was the water clarity that we had this year Mm -hmm. Um, and it is hard uh, because you know if you're if you're if you're going there for a good time and, and, and enjoying things, if you were to go into the water and have thirty meter visibility, absolutely fantastic. Cause you know, as a snorkeling experience, you know, to have that water clarity <laughs> is absolutely brilliant in warmer waters kind of thing. But unfortunately that's not conducive to uh, good plankton conditions and therefore then having plankton eaten uh, species, which a bastion shark is one of. So yeah, I think generally we've We've had uh, poor plankton conditions this summer, um, uh, apart from a few little times of when we've had the the sharks come in in these plankton uh, blooms. Uh, but the other interesting part of it was um, when we did see uh, some of the sharks, they were very low in the water or feeding underwater. And when we dived down, we found that there was a surface layer, which was very clear uh, and very little life in it. But below that, a few meters down, uh, there was a layer where there was very thick plankton and the sharks were feeding um, just under that. Um, so it might be, uh, again, like many other times, you know, you it's a bit of a misnomer to say, oh, there's no sharks here because, you know, as we know uh, from the tagging data and what we've talked about is the sharks move up and down in the water column uh, and just because they're on the surface doesn't mean that they're not there. It's just highly annoying for us because <laughs> we only need to be able to find them when they're on the surface. So if they're even two centimetres underneath the surface uh, you're not going to be able to see them we need to see the fins on the surface and the reason they're on the surface is feeding on plankton um, and whether if that plankton is is sitting deeper in the water then that's going to be troublesome um, for us so it's it's hard to know because they could well be hundreds and thousands of sharks um, just cruising around underneath us and we didn't really know
0: definitely something weird going on uh, but yet yeah, another mystery in the <laughs> in the world of basking sharks but my final question um, is, again, one that I ask every single guest on the podcast, and it's probably my favourite question. If you could be any species of shark and ray in the world, what would you be and why?
2: Well, you need to answer it first, because you said you don't. no one ever asks you.
0: Uh, oh, I need to answer it first. Uh, well, it changes every hour, depending on how I'm feeling. Oh. But my go-to answer is the pocket shark, because who wouldn't want to have bioluminescent armpits?
2: It's pretty oh, cool. Mm. you've thought of that one before. That one before. Uh, you've just
1: been waiting for someone to ask. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Shane, what would yours be?
2: Oh, you, you're Rachel, first, just, just in case she steals one of my ones again. I
1: don't think it'll be the same as yours. go on, Rachel. I have thought long and hard about this, and I'm gonna have to say the whale shark, just because. Aww. They just have the best outfits, don't they? Really, they're just beautiful. <laughs> They've got this great pattern, and I'd just love to cruise around somewhere like the Galapagos all day. Like, <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. Pretty nice. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I think. That's a good answer. They're yeah. very very beautiful and graceful, and yeah. they have
0: have seemingly quite a nice life,
1: apart from mm. a lot of tourists coming mm. alongside. Yeah, you. I wouldn't want to be one in the Philippines, but I definitely want to be one in like the Galapagos. Yeah. <laughs> Right, go on
2: then, Shane. What's Very yours? Good. Well, here I've got my Collins Gem shark book because <laughs> you probably don't know. I've got two kids, and, and this is the little book that we're going through at bedtime at the moment. So, I did think so this was two <laughs> yeah. answers. One, I was going to say taupe because I think taupe are really cool sharks, oh, yeah. which are kind of like a little, like a mini blue shark that hang about here. Yeah, they're cool. and when I worked at the aquarium years ago, we had one there and we used to feed it, and it was just the epicest little shark and used to cut around and you just got big kudos if you actually could feed it because it was quite a temperamental kind of thing and when it hunted around it used to swim around in circles and then its nose used to kind of light up uh, when it was hunting around so they're epic little things. It's
0: it's nose used to light up?
2: Yeah well it's it's funny like um, it didn't light up but it kind of almost it's kind of a grey, grayish bluey kind of shark. It's not as vibrant blue as a blue shark but Mm. it's kind of like a gray colour but then it's right on its snout, it almost not went transparent, but you could see uh, things happening in it. Like it was almost using that for hunting and it really turned really quickly. So it almost used that, you know, the ampullae and stuff. But it was an epic little thing, just used to zoom about and do its own thing. Um, But out of the Collins guide from my (coughs) bedtime stories, there was a lot of sharks in here. It's quite a good little thing. So So I was going to go for whiskery shark. He's got up. quite a big beard for summer, uh, for winter time. It's a whiskery shark. <laughs> but it's a stocky humped back shark with flaps over the nostrils that look like barbels. That sounds like you. The body is <laughs> grey and pale below because they're not getting much sleep at the moment with those two keeping me up. Uh, the young and some adults have dark saddles like the uh, saddles under my eyes. The snout is short, rounded or wedge-shaped and it's an active predator living near the seafloor so it's a bit of a bottom feeder. So I'm going to go for... Whiskery
1: Shark. Okay. So your spirit animal. <laughs> is.
2: And that's the Whiskery Shark here.
0: Sadly, that is the end of our deep dive into the mysterious world of the Baskin Shark. But you can find Shane on at Shane Wazick and Rachel on at rachel.underwater and at Rachel Brooks Art. She is also a phenomenal artist specialising in marine life, so please go and check out her work. And you can also check out the work of Basking Shock Scotland by following at Basking Shock Scotland or go to www.baskingshockscotland.co.uk. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one and leave us a nice review on iTunes. This just helps more people to find us. And if you would like a question answered on the podcast or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing ila at savercs.com. A massive thank you to our amazing guests, Shane and Rachel, for all their Baskin Shark wisdom. To David Knight, who provided the brilliant jingle you can hear right now. And to you at home for listening. Have a jawsome week and I will see you next time.